Our Father, we would ask now that as we open your word and meditate upon it, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. Give us clarity and conviction and confidence that your word is truth. It's a light to our path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. I would invite you to open God's word with me to James chapter 2. We were reading earlier and also Philippians chapter 2. I would invite you also to look in either the announcement sheet for the Westminster Confession, chapter 16 of Good Works, or it is also printed in the back of the hymnal, chapter 16 of Good Works. Good works are necessary for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. As John Owen put it, it's true, our interest in God is not built upon our holiness, but it is as true that we have none without it. There's no interest in God without good works. It's a strong statement. Good works is a very important subject in the Christian life and certainly merits a chapter in the Westminster Confession. Last time we looked at sections 1, 2, and 7, and we'll review those quickly, and then tonight we're going to look at sections 3 through 6. And so follow as I read sections 1, 2, and 7. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant of scripture, are devised by men out of a blind zeal or any pretense of good intention. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and the evidences of a true and living faith. By them, believers show their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their fellow believers, adorn the profession of the gospel, shut the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God. They are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that bearing fruit unto holiness, they may attain the outcome, which is eternal life. And seven, although the works done by unregenerate men may in themselves be things which God commands and things which are useful to themselves and others, yet because they do not come from a heart purified by faith, are not in a right manner according to the word, and are not done for the right purpose, which is to glorify God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make one suitable to receive his grace. Yet neglecting them is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Section one is the definition of good works, and there's two parts to that. Good works, first of all, are essential for the believer. God, good works are only such as God has commanded in his word, and then it goes on and qualifies them, but don't miss it, that there is a commandment for good works. That's the book of Titus, Titus 1.8, we must love good works. It's the theme of the book. Titus 2.14, be a zealot, have zest, joy for good works. Titus 3.8, to maintain, to be engaged in, to, to be devoted to good works. Calvin translated it to excel in, it's the highest rank. Good works are essential for the believer. And the second part of the definition is, and good works are defined for the believer by Scripture, only as commanded in his word by the warrant of Scripture. Requirements for good works are defined by God. Deuteronomy 12:32. you must diligently observe everything that I command you. Do not add to it or take anything from it. Requirements for a good work are not devised by people. 
Good works always have to go back somewhere in Scripture. And you might say in broad sweeps, well, that could be just the summary of the law. Couldn't it be to love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, that's a good place to start. That could be further expanded in the second table of the Ten Commandments. But consider places like even all the one-anotherings of Scripture, which we have in our membership vow there summarized or in your spiritual gifts. Somewhere in scripture you can be able to go, this is where God is telling me, this is what a good work is. This is, so good works are not measured by good intent. You can't say, well, Boy Scouts is a good work. They have good intent in what they're doing. Good works are not measured by intensity, how much hard work you put into it. You may have burned yourself out to plan for that bingo, but that doesn't make it a good work. Good works are not measured by zeal. They're not measured by the person's intent. Paul warns of a zeal for God, but it's not based in God's knowledge, Romans 10.2. Remember how far Peter got with his zeal as he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant and the Lord rebuked him. Have no more of this, Peter. Good works are not measured by zeal or intent. It's not measured by the person. It has to be defined by God and God and his word. And the requirements for good works also, secondly, have to come from a converted heart. That's what section 7 is expanding. Unbelievers do a lot of good things. Hospitals are built, famine relief. But because they're not coming from a heart that's converted by the Holy Spirit, a heart that loves God, a heart that's doing it for the glory of God, The scripture says, if it's not of faith, it's sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews 11, 6, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5, a good work has to be then commanded by God in scripture, warranted by his word, has to be done by a believer where God has changed his heart. And then it has to be done with the motivation that God intends to glorify God out of a love for God and a love for his church. The Lord could say to Israel, I hate your feasts, Isaiah 1.14, but those are the very feasts that God had commanded his people to do, but they weren't coming with the right motives. Believers have to obey God and his word and come with the right motives, and then the good work is accepted before God. Section 1 is dealing with the definition of good works. Then but last time we also looked at section 2, the value of good works, and What a beautiful summary this is. Six characteristics of the benefits of good works. Good works express gratitude to God for his grace. Secondly, good works strengthen assurance of salvation. Third, good works edify other believers. Four, good works stop the mouths of unbelievers. They adorn the gospel. Five, they glorify God. And six, they're even necessary to eternal life. Not that we add to our salvation. We can't merit God's grace and mercy and forgiveness that received by faith alone, but they're necessary fruit and evidence of a true faith, which we'll look more at on the assurance of faith. There's no such thing as someone who's been saved and genuinely converted, who also doesn't want to please the Lord and follow after holiness and press on in in good works. R.C. Sproul has a helpful way to express the relationship of salvation to good works And he says there's really only three ways to put this formula, as R.C. Sproul can do, and you can imagine him writing on a chalkboard. He said, first of all, the Roman Catholic wrong view of good works, that that would be faith plus works equals justification. 
Well, that's not biblical. The scriptures teach that we are saved by faith alone, not by our works. Then you go all the way to the other side. There's many evangelicals today that they would write the relationship between works and justification as faith equals justification. Works isn't even in their formula. And that's not a biblical response either. But the biblical pattern as expressed in the Reformed Confession is faith equals justification plus works. Saving faith will always be accompanied by obedience and good works. Luther put it, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's the review, and now let's look tonight at these section three through six. Section three is telling us the source of good works. Four is the correction of good works. And five and six together is the merit of good works. Section three, the source of good works. Their ability to do good works is not at all from themselves, but entirely from the spirit of Christ. And in order that they may be enabled to do these things, besides the graces believers have already received, there must also be an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit working in them, both to will and to do God's good pleasure. This truth, however, should not cause believers to become negligent, as though they were not bound to perform any duty without a special moving of the Spirit, rather They ought to be diligent in stirring stirring up the grace of God that is in them. What's the source of good works? It's it's not in ourselves alone. Salvation is not of ourselves. We're we're born dead in sins. We need God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to grant us the new birth. But that's the way it's going to be your whole life. You can't do any good works on your own, on your own, in your own strength. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Paul said, it's not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for pride in ourselves and our reference. The source of the good works has to be, first of all, from the work of the Holy Spirit. You have Philippians 2, 12 in front of you. Look what the apostle writes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out into every aspect of your life, not up, not working up from your efforts. But how can you do that? Because the Holy Spirit is in you and he's giving you the willingness and the doingness of his good pleasure. He continues to work in you your whole life. Hebrews 13, 20, may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him. Ezekiel 36, 26, moreover, I give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The Holy Spirit will do that. It's the mark of the new covenant and God does in the heart of the believer. 
Just as the Holy Spirit must come and grant new life at first and the new birth, so the rest of our lives. It's not an automatic evidence, fruit, and obedience, but by constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit all of our life, asking him to keep giving us the willingness and the doing of God's good pleasure. Some have tried to criticize the Westminster Confession because it doesn't give enough emphasis on the Holy Spirit. There isn't a chapter on the Holy Spirit. But the response is the whole confession is saturated with the work of the Holy Spirit. And here it is again. We're dependent upon him for any good works. Comma, and the source of good works is also from our work as we depend upon the Holy Spirit. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. And he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You don't need to wait for an additional prodding of the Holy Spirit if there's something clear in God's word for what you're supposed to do. You don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit to give you a certain emotion or a certain feeling or a certain confirmation. God's word is clear enough. And God calls you to obey it as you depend upon the Holy Spirit to obey. It's not either or, it's both and. And this has been an error all the way through the history of the church, including even the Reformed churches, hyper-Calvinism, and unbiblical quietism, mysticism. Before I can make this decision, before I can do anything good, I need to have a certain feeling or action or certain work of the Holy Spirit, additional blessing. I remember evangelizing a man once who had been raised or exposed to some hyper-Calvinism. was urging him to consider the claims of Christ, and his response was he didn't know first if he was one of the elect. He was waiting for something from God the Holy Spirit to show him something else. God's word commands us to repent and believe the gospel. Come to Christ and all who come to him, he will not drive away. That's all you need. And so too with all of our good works. God commands you to do something, do it. Depending upon the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying that he will keep giving you more and more the willingness and the doing of God's good pleasure, but get to work in obedience, trusting in him for strength and for grace. Ferguson put it, it's never the waiters for grace, W-A-I-T-E-R-S, it's never the waiters for grace, but always the active Seekers for grace and the doers of his word whom God approves. The source of good works is God the Holy Spirit and the work of the believer, both and. Section four is then correcting of good works. 
Reading from the confession, they who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are so far from being able to go beyond duty and do more than God requires that they fall short of much that is their duty to do. Can you do more than what God requires? Some people think so. That's the system of Roman Catholicism. The fancy theological word is supererogation, means more than it's what's demanded. Roman Church in the Middle Ages developed this thinking that the saints and Mary had reached 100% of obedience, what God had required, and did more. So they were certainly allowed to enter right into heaven, And those extra works were then deposited with the church in a treasury of merit. And the church can distribute those extra good works to others. This is still the teaching of the Roman Church, Baltimore Confession, 1125. So if you not only got 100%, but if you got 110%, you don't need that 10%. And God would give that to others to help them get to heaven. Can you do more than what God requires? The Bible clearly teaches you cannot. No one can. No matter the level of obedience and sanctification that a believer may reach in this life, we are still so far short from what a holy God requires. The apostles sinned to the end of their lives. Romans 7.14, we know that the law is spiritual. And Paul says, I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. Luke 17.10, when you do all the things which are commanded to you, say, we're unworthy slaves. We've only done what we ought to have done. James would say, James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. And the Apostle John would write, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. At Judgment Day, you're not going to be wondering, did I get a hundred on my test of this life. Maybe I got an A plus. That's not what you're going to be asking. You're not going to be asking at Judgment Day, maybe I got just a passing grade. On Judgment Day, all believers are going to be saying, Jesus Christ obeyed perfect righteousness, and that has been transferred to my account. I'm standing in Christ's righteousness, not my own. That's going to be the basis where we hear, well done, enter in the presence of the Lord. We then come to sections five and six, the merit of good works. On the one hand, section five is reminding us that our good works don't merit anything. God is not required. It's not a duty. It's not a contract. But yet, section six, beautiful pastoral section that nevertheless God rewards them. Section 5, our good works merit nothing. We cannot by our best works merit forgiveness for sin or eternal life at the hand of God. This is true because of the great disproportion between our best works and the glory to come and because of the infinite distance between us and God. 
We cannot benefit God by our best works, nor render satisfaction for the debt of our former sins. For when we have done all we can, we have done merely our duty and our unprofitable servants. This is because insofar as they are good, these deeds proceed from the Spirit. And insofar as they are done by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. And someone will respond, but what about Abraham? Wasn't he justified, saved by his good works? Didn't his good works merit his salvation? Look at James 2.17, which we read earlier. James is referring to an incident in Abraham's life to illustrate the relationship of Abraham's works and his faith. This incident is the occasion when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And that occurs many years after his justification by faith alone, which is recorded in Genesis 15, where it's recorded, he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was justified way back, Genesis 15. Isaac, sacrifice of Isaac is years later, Genesis 22. Even the covenant where he was given the institution of circumcision, In Genesis 17, occurs years after Genesis 15. And Paul uses that same argument. Abraham was justified first. Abraham's circumcision, was it after his justification or was it before? And he refers to Genesis 15, 6. What does scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Paul's using that same argument as James is arguing. Paul, Abraham's justification happened first, and then came circumcision. James is arguing the same thing. Abraham was already justified years before. And God called him to this sacrificial act of obedience as evidence of a genuine faith. James is not arguing that Abraham was saved or justified on account of his works. His works didn't merit his salvation. He was already justified. He was giving evidence of a true heart. He was giving evidence of a true faith. Because faith and works are never separated. And that's James' argument. You can't separate them. They're like a root of the plant and the plant. You can't separate them. They're joined together. And this is why our confession says they're both necessary, and yet we're not saved by them. Our good works merit nothing. But our good works are rewarded. Section 6, nevertheless... Because believers are accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. They are accepted not because believers are in this life unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but because he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it's accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. If the best thing that we can do as Christians is still mixed with sin, how could God receive them as a good work? How could he reward them? Well, there's two answers to that, that our good works are, first of all, received 
through Christ. They're received because of the righteousness of Christ. Think of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being a double filter. I don't mean that in any way disrespectful. Usually we think of it as our standing in in salvation and justification. How do we stand before God? Well, it's all those who come in faith are pardoned from their sin and the righteousness of Christ is credited to them. So it covers us. So as God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ then is a filter this way. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ is also a filter this way. All of our obedience and our worship is filtered through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God the Father receives it. Because it comes in the righteousness through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.5. It's through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. We offer spiritual sacrifices, 1 Peter 2.5, acceptable to God through Christ. Not, they're not accepted by Christ. It's a very important preposition. <laughs> Our good works are accepted through Christ, on account of Christ. And so our good works, with all of their inadequacies and with all of their failures, nevertheless, we are in Christ. And they are received through Christ. This is what Augustine was saying. See thy work in me, not mine. For if thou seest mine, thou wilt condemn it. If thou seest thine own, thou wilt crown it. For whatever good works are mine are from thee. Our good works are rewarded through Christ. It's simply God's decision in grace to reward believers' obedience and good works. R.C. Sproul put it, justification is by faith alone. But our reward in heaven will be according to our works. Completely out of proportion. God's reward is going to be far larger than anything that we have done. God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, Hebrews 6.10. And on that last day, Christ is going to say to the believer, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25, 21. Ferguson has a great illustration of this, how God rewards the good works and the obedience of the believer far out of proportion to what we do. Ferguson said, it's a little bit like a man saying to his friend, here's $5,000, I want you to invest it for me for this month while I'm gone. And I'll reward you at the end of the month when I return. And so the man, a month later, returns and rewards him for the investment on the money. On this $5,000, he says, here's your reward. I'm giving you two Cadillacs for your reward and investment out of $5,000. It's completely out of proportion to what he could possibly do of an investment in one month. And yet there's a relationship of reward to obedience. 
But God is lavish in his grace, and it's going to be completely out of proportion to what we do. The initial investment all comes from God, the work of the Holy Spirit. He has to give us the new heart. He has to give us the new birth. He has to give us faith in Christ. He has to keep working in us the willing and doing of his good pleasure. That's the investment that he gives to us. And he's, just imagine the investor called in every two hours to his friend that month and telling him how to invest it and what direction to do and what mistakes to avoid. Well, we have the scriptures. God is saying, here's how you're to invest and here's the way for your obedience. What about this man often, what if he had often thought about stealing that $5,000? What if he did steal some of it? But yet the investment was still so good that even in spite of his stealing, there was still a return. (laughs) Our obedience and good works, confession says, yet notwithstanding, our good works are accepted in him. Not because our good works are sinless, but God is lavish in his grace and they're always received through Christ. very pastoral, isn't it? The encouragement, because we all see our imperfections. We all see and feel, boy, I've got so far to go. I fail so often in my responsibilities to the life of the church and to other believers. To think that God would reward my efforts. But you see, that's, that's the beauty of adoption, God is doing this as a father to a child, not as a judge. After J.I. Packer died two years ago, I said to myself, oh, I want to read Knowing God again. And it was worth the read, and especially the chapter on adoption. I was struck again. That that's, that chapter is worth the whole book. If you haven't read it, read it. If you, if you read it a long time ago, read it again. J.I. Packer was saying, The highest privilege of the gospel is not justification. Justification is the act of a judge, God the judge, where he pardons all of our sins and counts us as righteous, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and we receive by faith alone. It's a judge in a courtroom, completely forgiving, pardoning a sinner. It doesn't stop there. The judge then adopts the criminal and says, you're now my child, and I give to you all the privileges of adoption. That's the greatest privilege of the gospel. That's why God rewards our good works, because of adoption. You're in a relationship of the father to a child, and your father is delighting in you with all of our imperfect efforts of obedience received through Christ God the Father is taking delight in them. All of our lives, when our children would bring home artwork, go up on the fridge. Now it's the grandkids. Papa, look what I've painted for you. It's not a Renoir, it's not a Leonardo da Vinci, but it's one of my grandchildren. It goes up on the fridge. All over my study, I've got piles of their artwork. Why? They're my grandkids. The heart of the believer that has come into a relationship 
of forgiveness, justification, and adoption wants to respond in love to their father. And the other perspective is the father is delighting in the artwork of his kids. Not because they're perfect, but because they're his kids. So for all of our inadequacies and we nevertheless pray, Lord, keep working in me more and more willingness and the doing of your good pleasure. Show me where I can keep growing in good works that my Father will be glorified. Good works are necessary for those who profess faith in Christ. John Owen said it's true, our interest in God is not built upon our holiness, but it is as true that we have none without it. May we be more and more a people zealous for good works, and may you never grow weary in doing what is good. Shall we pray? Father, that's our prayer, that you would work in us more and more a willingness in the doing of your good pleasure. Forgive us of our many sins. We are aware of many of them. We're not aware of how systemic our sin is. None of us are. And we see how we need to keep growing, how inadequate many times our efforts of obedience and good works are. But what a joy it is to remember that we are in a relationship to you as a father to children. And you delight in your children. We are so glad that you are our father. And that we are your children. Thank you that you receive us through Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.